right now on Matter of Fact. Please welcome the 2023 mayor-elect Jalen Smith. At age 18, Jalen Smith made history by becoming the youngest black mayor ever in the United States. His mission, save his hometown. Why should I have to go somewhere else and be great when I can be great right here in Earl, Arkansas? But the teen is now in charge of a rural town with a tough past and not so bright future. We can't continue to live the way we have been living. Does he have what it takes to inspire the residents and revive the city? Just looking for a change, you know, good or bad, just a change. Plus, the results are in for the four-day work week experiment. Employees are really happy and the companies are really happy too. One of the researchers behind the first of its kind study is back to give Soledad the update. Where do you think this experiment goes? Could this global study change the way Americans work around the clock? And cars, wildfires, and power plants. Our air is filled with pollution. How a satellite ready for liftoff could help everyone breathe a little easier. I'm Soledad O'Brien. Welcome to Matter of Fact. Rural American towns are fighting for survival. 46 million people, or 14% of the U.S. population, live in rural areas. That number is shrinking. Between 2010 and 2020, rural areas lost more than a quarter of a million people. These towns are struggling to attract and keep residents because of a lack of access to services, long commutes to jobs, and non-existent or unreliable internet. In Earl, Arkansas, they're hoping new leadership can spark a revival. The town recently made history by electing the youngest black mayor in the United States. Jalen Smith was sworn in last month. He's now in charge of a city that has experienced decades of segregation, violent resistance to racial progress, and a loss of jobs and tax base. It's a town of about 1,800 people. The majority is black, and around 30% live in poverty. Our correspondent, Jessica Gomez, takes us to Earl to see why this town thinks a teenager is the best person to lead. Let's give it up for the Parents' night for the varsity basketball team at Earl High School, home of the Bulldogs. Tommy! At six foot four, 19-year-old Jalen Smith isn't a player. He's the mayor. I will basically just start the of the office of the office of Earl City Mayor. Earl City Mayor. Sworn in last month when he was still 18, Smith made history, becoming the youngest black mayor elected in the United States. I believe I won this campaign of hope and belief and faith. It was in high school where Smith, who struggled with a learning disability, participated in student government and was hooked. I heard you started wearing a suit when you were in high school. I started wearing suits in the ninth grade. I wanted to dress where I wanted to go. Raised by a single mother, he started showing up at city and county meetings, asking questions. I was like, why are you up there messing with them people? He was like, well, mama, I just want to know how I'm going to know if I don't ask. Smith, who still lives at home, announced he would run for mayor last year before graduating from high school. A lot of people don't vote due to the fact that change never happened within this community. So he helped his young friends register to vote. Hey, 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 how doing? And convinced others, like restaurant owner Gloria Williams, to give him a shot. I think with young people, they have more energy. 
if they can't get it, get it done themselves, they can get help getting it done. And when I ran my campaign, I knocked on every door because I, want, I wanted to show the people that it's time for a change. It's time for a transformation here within the city. Earl, Arkansas, a shell of what it once was, the biggest city in Crittenden County. Surrounded by farms, Earl has been bleeding people and businesses for decades now, leaving this part of the Arkansas Delta with crumbling infrastructure and flooded yards. 76-year-old William Davis, his auto body repair shop, one of the few businesses that survived. We don't have a grocery store here. It has been gone for like four years, you know, and they put a furniture store in there and said, we're supposed to eat furniture, I think. I don't know. We love Earl and we love the people of Earl. But at Clark's Pharmacy, business hasn't been great for a while now. How is it that Earl elected an 18-year-old to, to run the city? Just looking for a change, you know, tired of things being the way they've been for however many years. Change, it hasn't always come easy here. Outside City Hall, two water fountains still standing, symbols of the city's painful past. Desegregation was not the only issue precipitating the protest. City Council member Claudia Forrest, she remembers when schools finally became integrated here in 1970 and the night her mother survived getting shot during a protest. What was it like here when you were growing up? Divided, and that, that covers it right there. The track right there was a division line. Now, five decades later, the keys to the city in the hands of a young man with some big ideas. I tell them the plans that I want to fulfill in this community, such as public safety, beautifying our city, bringing more housing, pulling, bringing public transportation, bringing a grocery store within this community. We just got to move, and we have four years to move. It's not I moving this community. We are as people, the mayor, the city council, and the people, we're going to move it. You all can set up a time that works for you in the next three weeks. With a little help from mom, who manages his busy schedule. He is the boss when I'm in here. I will do what he asks me to do. And then what happens when you're at home? I, I'm the boss. I, he going to do everything I tell him to do. <laughs> you made my day. I'm about to cry. The new mayor hoping the focus of his historic election stays on his hometown. Can I shake your hand, future yeah. president? <laughs> Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. How does all the attention feel? It feels good. You know, finally, uh, not only I'm out there early, you see the early on the map, and people mm -hmm. know where early is. Where Earl is, he says, and where it's going. We can't continue to live the way we have been living. We have to move to a brighter future. Before the sun sets on Earl, Arkansas. For matter of fact, I'm Jessica Gomez. Mayor Smith is also a student taking online classes at Arkansas State University. Next on Matter of Fact, the first phase of the four-day workweek experiment is complete. Their revenue went up, absenteeism fell. One of the researchers returns with an update. Could this ever become a reality across the U.S.? Plus, a med student's concern went viral. Got half a million views within about two days. Showing how a widely used medical device fails to accurately read on a person with darker skin. That pulse oximeter may not catch that, and it may send them home earlier. Now the FDA is calling for a closer review by testing them on patients in the intensive care unit. 
And later, a NASA-funded mission to alert you about air quality in your neighborhood. You're watching Matter of Fact, America's number one nationally syndicated public affairs news magazine. A four-day work week. It sounds pretty good, right? Both for the employee and, according to new research, it's good for companies, too. A couple of months ago, I interviewed economist Juliet Shore about a four-day workweek pilot program in the United Kingdom, the largest study of its kind. She and her co-researchers found that while people worked fewer hours, productivity and revenue stayed relatively the same. In some cases, the profits grew. Well, now that pilot program has ended, dozens of the companies say they plan to keep the four-day work week, and lawmakers are taking note. At least one state legislature, Maryland, is currently considering a bill to give incentives to companies that cut back on hours. Dr. Shore is also a sociology professor at Boston College and joins me now. Dr. Juliet Shore, nice to have you back. So let's begin with the ending. Talk to me a little bit about uh, what you found in the experiment. We had fabulous results. We got a good number of companies. 61 ended up doing this phase of the trial. On the employee side, stress, burnout, physical health, mental health, fatigue, exercise, all of those things improved and significantly so, statistically speaking. So employees are really happy. And the companies are really happy too. Almost all of them are continuing with the four-day week. Uh, their revenue went up, the quitting of their employees went down, absenteeism fell. I could see employees thinking that this is amazing. I would love to have an extra long weekend. But I'm curious if it was hard to get the companies, the businesses on board. Were they hesitant? These trials are really employer or company driven. These days, more of them are thinking about how do I attract people for all those open positions at my companies. But um, no, we're not out there convincing them. They're coming to us. Three out of those 61 companies that you mentioned in this phase of the trial decided not to, in fact, continue to implement the four-day work week. We had you know, a few teams in one of those companies that really wasn't able to sort of pull off the work reorganization and keep their production and productivity up, and that's to be expected. So um, the fact that you know, there were just those few, I think, shows the power of this, uh, of this schedule. You might remember when we spoke the last time, you had said you predicted that in the next five years you expected to see legislation sort of looking at this very thing, shrinking the U.S. work week. And so I'm, I'm curious if you expect more and maybe faster than your original five-year timetable. Since we talked, uh, a legislator in Massachusetts has approached me about what he's calling a three-day weekend bill rather than a four-day work week. Five years is, is you know, maybe maybe too long, but you know, legislation often takes a while and you need to get that sort of some states innovating before the federal government comes in. Where do you think this experiment goes? Are there things that you learned in your results that you think, hey, I'd like to redo this experiment and dive into those particular things next go around? So the things I'm most eager uh, to sort of do next are number one, to get some really big companies. My U.S. team is, is about to start interviews on U.S. companies. 
uh, and Canadian companies that are implementing four-day weeks. And then I'd love to embed some researchers in the companies uh, to do ethnographic research so they can see how it's actually playing out day to day. Yeah, that would be really interesting. We'll have you back to talk about that when that happens. Dr. Shore, nice to see you as always. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much, Soledad. You bet. Coming up, a medical student is sounding the alarm on social media about a healthcare disparity. I saw a study, I said, let me make a TikTok about this. <laughs> Pulse oximeters giving inaccurate results on people with darker skin. The bias in the device isn't the device itself, but how it was manufactured. What the FDA is doing to fix the problem. And later, a study reveals kids are not eating their fruits and vegetables. Find out how an end to COVID expanded food benefits could make things worse. bias is under more scrutiny, not just bedside manner, but also the instruments used to test your health. Pulse oximeters check your blood's oxygen levels and are easy and painless to use. And they're often wrong. These devices are nearly three times more likely to produce an inaccurate reading for a black patient than for a white one. Last November, an FDA advisory panel called for clearer labeling and more testing of the devices. Well, now the agency is funding a small lab in San Francisco to test accuracy in the real world, studying how they work on patients of different skin tones in intensive care units. Meanwhile, healthcare workers continue to talk about medical bias on social media. Joelle Burvell is a medical student whose TikTok video on this underlying racial bias went viral. So my percentage right now is 98%. 100% is like the max, but most people are between like 90, 95 to 100. What it's essentially looking for is it's looking for your oxygen saturation of hemoglobin. And so it's seeing how much light is absorbed back from that hemoglobin. But in darker skin tones, melanin also absorbs light. And so it can cause that number to be increased. My name is Joel Burrell. I'm a fourth year medical student at Washington State University, but I'm doing a research year right now at Johns Hopkins. In medicine, there's a myth online I'm better known as the medical myth buster for talking about issues of healthcare disparities that exist and have long been overlooked in medicine. One of those examples is pulse oximeters. I was on Instagram and I was scrolling through and I saw an article from the New England Journal of Medicine um, that was essentially showing how these devices that are meant to measure oxygen saturation don't read as equally in darker skin tones. And for me, knowing that one, I'm a black person, two, I'm a black medical student, and three, that my medical school hadn't even talked about any of these issues, that concerned me. I did what anyone else would do, right? I saw a study, I said, let me make a TikTok about this. <laughs> Samuel Cartwright. The first thing I wanted to include was, what was the problem? And so I focused on, I'm calling it racial bias in medicine. The bias in the device isn't the device itself, but how it was manufactured. So many of these devices are tested on populations that have lighter skin, not darker skin. And then I talked about the significance of that because if a patient comes in with COVID, with shortness of breath, that pulse oximeter may not catch that, and it may send them home earlier. Pulse oximeters measure how much oxygen saturation. That video ended up um, going viral, and a lot of the comments were from doctors and nurses and students saying, I've never heard about this. Social media gets a really bad rap, right? But I think there are opportunities to bring that education to people and allow them to be able to understand more about their own health. I think that's really why I do the work I do right now. We continue the conversation about pulse oximeters on our website. I talked to Valencia Joyner-Kumpson. 
an associate professor of electrical and computer engineering at Tufts University. Find out how she's working on solutions to this problem on matteroffact.tv. Ahead on Matter of Fact, America's children are not getting enough fruits and vegetables. Find out why parents are struggling to put healthy food on the table. And later, our air is filled with pollutants. A NASA-funded mission wants to help. Could an upcoming satellite launch help you breathe easier? To stay up to date with Matter of Fact, sign up for our newsletter at matteroffact.tv. America's children aren't getting enough fruits and vegetables. The CDC surveyed the parents of close to 19,000 children between the ages of one and five over six months. And they found that only half the kids eat at least one portion of vegetables every day. Around a third said that their kid is not consuming fruit on a daily basis. And nearly 60% of kids drink at least one unhealthy sugary beverage a week. Pediatricians say toddlers growth and brain development improves when they eat at least one cup of fruit and one cup of vegetables every single day. It's not always easy for parents to provide what their kids need. Almost a fifth reported that they either couldn't afford enough to eat or that healthy food was beyond their budgets. And food insecurity could get worse. Food prices have climbed and the last of the pandemic-related SNAP benefits officially end in March. Many states have already stopped providing the additional $95 a month to SNAP households. Plus, the COVID-related federal program, which offered free school meals to 50 million children, has also ended. All that means that students aren't getting the balanced meals the schools once provided. Still ahead on Matter of Fact, how this technology could give you updates about the air quality in your neighborhood, hour by hour. Finally, a satellite launch in April could change what you know about the air you breathe. Our air is filled with pollutants from cars and power plants and refineries and other sources. This all takes a toll on the health of children, the elderly, people with pre-existing conditions and lung issues. Oftentimes, air quality can change without warning, putting people at risk. A NASA-funded mission wants to help. Scientists are attaching a box-shaped sensor called TEMPO to a satellite, and that's gonna measure air pollution across the United States, Canada, and Mexico. This isn't a new approach, but it is a big improvement on existing technology. Currently, Los Angeles and other major cities rely on ground sensors to get updates on the air quality. However, places outside urban areas aren't monitored. With Tempo, researchers scan all of North America and get their updates on the air quality by the hour. They can also zero in on a specific area, giving an air quality reading for just one zip code. This tool comes in handy when high winds blow toxic air from one place to another hundreds of miles away. Tempo won't be the only satellite of its kind in Earth's orbit. South Korea launched theirs in 2020, and the European Union is scheduled for theirs next year. Altogether, this constellation of satellites could help us all breathe easier. That's it for this edition of Matter of Fact. I'm Soledad O'Brien, and I'll see you back here next week. Listen to Matter of Fact with Soledad O'Brien on your favorite podcast provider. Watch us during the week on FYI and YouTube.